It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug use, murder, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was a perfect 70-degree evening in Mexico City. The date, September 16, 1988, marked Mexico's Independence Day. Citizens celebrated with concerts, parades, and fireworks. But the scene was quieter in the wealthy suburbs. There, a government official named Florentino Ventura enjoyed an intimate evening of barbecue with his wife and her close friend. Ventura's reputation had reached an almost mythic status in Mexico. He was known as El Tigre, or the Tiger. A former bullfighter, he became a police officer in the 1940s, and by the 70s, he had earned international acclaim for taking down some of Mexico's most notorious drug lords. By the end of the night, Ventura, his wife, and their guest were all dead. According to the police report, Ventura had gotten into a heated argument with his wife. He shot the two women with a 45 caliber pistol before putting the gun in his own mouth. Ventura's children refused to accept the coroner's official ruling. They believed their parents were murdered and that corrupt police officials were covering up the crime. Rumors suggested the shooting could be traced back to Juan Jose Esparagoza Moreno, a drug kingpin known as El Azul. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the Parcast Network. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. This is our first episode on Juan Jose Esparagoza Moreno, also known as El Azul, or the Blue One, due to the bluish tone of his dark skin. He worked side by side with the biggest names in the Mexican drug trade from the 1970s into the 21st century. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com merch for more information. El Azul wove through a sea of tables laughing as he greeted his visitors. The guests, Joaquin El Chapo Guzman and Miguel Angel Marinez, were offered their choice of dinner. 
lobster, sirloin, or pheasant, with whiskey or cognac to accompany the meal. Cocaine was available too, if the guests so preferred. A live Mexican folk band supplied the entertainment. The place had the air of a nightclub, but in fact, the men were chatting within the walls of Reclusorio Sur, a penitentiary just south of Mexico City. The year was 1987, and El Azul was just a few months into a seven-year sentence. But you never would have guessed it from the way he and his guests were waited on by a staff of fellow inmates. El Azul had achieved this lofty status within the prison partially due to his power within the criminal underworld. He was a legend of the Guadalajara cartel, the most powerful drug cartel in Mexico. Also, as a former government agent, El Azul enjoyed close ties with corrupt law enforcement officers, state governors, and military generals. He kept these relationships strong by regularly paying out millions of pesos in bribes. It was clear to everyone at Reclusorio Sur, El Azul ran the place. Guards remembered him fondly as a jovial man who used his money to make things beautiful, even in prison. Beyond the nightclub he put together in his cell block, he paid for an ornate fountain to be constructed in the courtyard. He also had a playground built for visiting children. It wasn't just El Azul's money that held sway in the prison. It was also the way he conducted himself. His flattering, charming, and easygoing nature made people apt to get along with him. He was ideally suited for his role as the peacemaker. Whenever disputes over territories and trafficking routes arose within the underworld, El Azul was the man who could push the kingpins toward a truce. But on the night El Chapo and Marinez came to see him in 1987, a truce was the last thing on their minds. El Chapo wanted revenge. He and his crew were in the middle of a feud with the Ariano Felix brothers, Ramon and Benjamin. Until recently, they had all worked under the umbrella of the Guadalajara cartel, which operated throughout the entire northwest corridor of Mexico. But the Ariano Felix brothers had just split from the group to control their own operation in Tijuana. The split had caused some friction, and the Ariano Felix brothers had murdered two of El Chapo's friends in the dispute. El Chapo was prepared to kill the two brothers in retaliation. In the late 1980s, El Chapo wasn't the internationally renowned crime boss we know him as today. He was just a low-level gunman. He wouldn't go to war until he had gotten the renowned peacemaker's consent. The peacemaker, as his nickname suggested, did not like violence. El Azul often said, the business of drug trafficking is not carried out with bullets. But he understood that in this line of work, a little murder was sometimes unavoidable. Once he heard El Chapo's story, he gave him permission to retaliate. Just like that, El Chapo's war with the Arellano Felix brothers was set in motion, a war that would claim dozens of lives before it was settled. At the end of their meeting, El Chapo and Marinez thanked the peacemaker and left. El Azul was escorted back to his cell, comfortable knowing that whatever happened between the warring drug lords, he'd be safe within the shadows of his opulent prison. He retired to his chamber, a private room kept clean and orderly by a full staff of personal attendants. 
Juan José Esparagoza Moreno was used to a life of comfort and luxury. He was born in 1949, during a period when Mexico was enjoying unprecedented economic growth and stability. The Esparagoza Moreno family operated a ranch in the small village of Huichiopa in the state of Sinaloa, Mexico. The ranch was prosperous enough that El Azul would one day be left with an inheritance of 50 million pesos, worth about 2 million U.S. dollars at the time. When he looked back at his childhood, El Azul remembered his mother as demanding and stern. But his father was an indulgent figure who tended to spoil him, the youngest of the family's seven children. El Azul and his father were always close. They seemed to have a mutual understanding to ignore each other's bad behavior. When he was a child, El Azul once walked in on his father in the barn with another woman. The boy froze for a moment in shock, then simply closed the barn door and never mentioned the incident again. El Azul didn't like school, and he dropped out at the age of 16 in around 1965. He worried about what his family would say, but his father didn't get upset. Instead, he helped El Azul start a small grocery business, where he first learned the art of customer service and salesmanship. But the young man had his eye on a different kind of business. Sinaloa is part of Mexico's Golden Triangle, an area with dry soil and perfect weather conditions for growing opium poppies and cannabis. In Sinaloa and its neighboring states, drug trafficking is one of the most popular professions. El Azul didn't buck this trend. He started dealing drugs when he was about 20 years old. Despite his youth, he was no small-time peddler. He worked his way into a large-scale trafficking operation run by a man named Juan José Para, also known as El Diablo, the Devil. But just as El Azul entered the drug business in the late 60s, things began to change in Sinaloa. These changes were prompted by a shift in United States drug policy after the election of Richard Nixon in 1968. Nixon associated drugs with leftist groups and anti-Vietnam War agitators. He called drug abuse public enemy number one. And after taking office, he officially launched America's war on drugs. In September 1969, the Nixon administration began Operation Intercept, a policy that drastically changed the way customs agents process travel across the border. Previously, agents usually stopped one out of every 20 cars at the border to check for drugs or contraband. Once Operation Intercept went into effect, customs agents were required to conduct a three-minute inspection of every single vehicle traveling from Mexico into the United States. The Mexican government was informed about the new policy only days before it was implemented, and they were furious. In the first week, border agents stopped 2,384,079 cars. After complaints from Mexico's president and foreign secretary, the U.S. agreed to abandon Operation Intercept as long as the Mexican government agreed to cooperate with U.S. efforts to curb drug trafficking. Their hand had been forced, but Mexican law enforcement held up their end of the bargain. Throughout the early 70s, they stepped up their efforts to target the drug flow, specifically through the Golden Triangle. In 1970, Mexican police stopped a truck traveling through Culiacan, Sinaloa. 
a quick search discovered 700 kilograms of marijuana inside. Also inside was the truck's nervous 21-year-old driver, Juan Jose Esparagoza Moreno. When we come back, we'll discuss the outcome of El Azul's first major run-in with the law. Now back to the story. Sinaloa, Mexico was a hotbed for drug trafficking in the 1960s. But as the 70s rolled in, the Mexican government boosted its drug enforcement practices in response to U.S. pressure. One of the first victims of the crackdown was Juan Jose Espargoza Moreno, better known as El Azul. In 1970, El Azul was arrested as he attempted to transport 700 kilos of marijuana through Sinaloa. He was charged with trafficking and crimes against the public health and sentenced to five years in prison. Perhaps El Azul's wealth and family status protected him, or perhaps an arrangement was worked out by the higher-ups in the trafficking ring he worked for. Whatever the reason, lawyers were able to successfully appeal his case, and El Azul was released after just nine months behind bars. This incident didn't scare the 21-year-old smuggler away from the drug trade, but it did motivate him to keep a low profile. From then on, El Azul shied away from flashy clothes or expensive cars. He kept an even temper, and he refrained from starting public feuds with anyone. His goal was to remain as unremarkable as possible. El Azul was smart to remain inconspicuous. Mexico's anti-drug initiatives in Sinaloa weren't slowing down. In 1975, the Mexican government initiated Operation Condor, to eradicate the poppy and marijuana fields nestled in the mountains of the Golden Triangle. Helicopters donated by the U.S. State Department began patrolling the Sierra Madre Mountains. They dumped herbicides over thousands of acres of land to destroy the drug crops. Military and police raids also increased amid the crackdown. The United States Drug Enforcement Administration, newly established in 1973, sent down dozens of agents to collaborate with Mexican authorities in the eradication efforts. Operation Condor did successfully destroy millions of dollars of crops, but it didn't put a stop to drug trafficking. With the increased focus on Sinaloa, drug barons simply relocated to other parts of Mexico. The leading members of Sinaloa's drug trade traveled hundreds of miles down the Pacific coast and congregated in Mexico's second largest city, Guadalajara. By the mid-70s, El Azul followed the tide. He began a new life with a new family in tow. In 1972, 23-year-old El Azul entered long-term relationships with two different women, Maria Guadalupe Gasteam Payan and Ofelia Monzon Araujo. He referred to both women as his wives, although since bigamy is illegal in Mexico, the exact legality of these relationships is unclear. But his commitment to these two women appears genuine. He maintained both relationships for decades. Both women gave birth to sons in 1972. El Azul was intensely devoted to his family. He had a reputation for being mild-mannered and genteel, but any threats to his wives or children immediately brought out his deadly side. One of his suppliers learned this the hard way. After he set up business in Guadalajara, 
El Azul added prescription pills to his drug inventory, supplied by a doctor named Rodriguez. On a spring day in 1976, the doctor paid a visit to El Azul's home. El Azul wasn't there, but the doctor found Maria Guadalupe eight months pregnant and alone except for her four-year-old son. The doctor cornered and sexually assaulted her. Days later, a red sedan and a pickup truck pulled up in front of the doctor's practice in the busy commercial neighborhood of Santa Teresita. Passers-by heard five shots explode from within the building. A pair of figures raced outside, climbed into the cars, and sped away. The doctor was found shot dead in his office. The two gunmen were apprehended, and one of them confessed that the hit was ordered by a man named El Azul. The police in Guadalajara had never heard of anyone by that alias. With the two assassins in custody and no other leads on this mysterious El Azul, they didn't make a serious effort to pursue him. The police would never have suspected that the man they were looking for was one of their own. At some point in the 1970s, El Azul became an agent of the now-defunct Mexican intelligence agency, the Federal Security Directorate, or DFS. Given his criminal activity, El Azul might have seemed like a strange candidate for a career in law enforcement. But corruption within the DFS was so rampant that the federal agency was seen as a sort of career ladder for criminals. Many of the agency's commanders protected different cartels in exchange for bribes, or even directly participated in drug smuggling operations themselves. Thus, by taking a job with the federal government, El Azul only furthered his career as a drug trafficker. Through his work at the DFS, he met Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo. They had a lot in common. They were both around 30 years old, and both had been born in Sinaloa, Mexico. Felix Gallardo had been a state police officer in Sinaloa, and he had gone on to become the personal bodyguard of Leopoldo Sanchez Celis, the former governor of Sinaloa. Like El Azul, Felix Gallardo had moved to Guadalajara in the mid-1970s, when military sweeps in Sinaloa made the drug business there untenable. With his political connections, Felix Gallardo had no trouble building a new empire in Guadalajara. As business exploded in the late 1970s, he sought out skilled lieutenants to keep his operation running, and El Azul caught his attention. El Azul did not disappoint expectations. He proved to be an excellent negotiator, known for quickly easing tension with jokes and sweet talk. An informant described El Azul as, quote, a really skilled capo. He gets along with everybody. He's not a killer for killing's sake. He kills with money and with his charisma. Because of that, he is not only respected among drug dealers, he is loved. Within a few years, El Azul had become one of Felix Gallardo's top advisors. They presided over what was about to become the most powerful drug empire Mexico had ever seen. In the mid-70s, Felix Gallardo was introduced to Juan Mata Ballesteros, a Honduran drug trafficker who had connections to the Medellin cartel in Colombia. Up to this point, Colombian cocaine had never passed through Mexico. It was flown directly into the United States. But Mata Ballesteros saw an opportunity to work together. 
Mata Ballesteros brokered a deal for Felix Gallardo to help smuggle Colombian cocaine through Mexico and into Southern California. In exchange, Felix Gallardo would be paid in cocaine, which he could then sell through his own distribution network at an incalculably high profit margin. It was obviously a smart move for Felix Gallardo. While the Mexican government was busy destroying poppy and marijuana plantations, he began moving a product more lucrative than marijuana and heroin put together. He partnered with Ernesto Fonseca, nicknamed Donetto, who had been smuggling cocaine out of Ecuador for years. Their organization became known as the Guadalajara Cartel. With his political connections and massive cocaine profits, Felix Gallardo built himself up to become the overseer of nearly all the drug distribution in Mexico. El Hazul made himself indispensable to the ever-growing cartel by settling internal disputes over trafficking routes, striking deals, and negotiating the organization's rules of operation. The Guadalajara cartel was tolerated by the state of Jalisco's governor, Enrique Alvarez del Castillo, because the traffickers would often invest their wealth into the community. Within just a few years, modern luxury hotels reshaped the Guadalajara skyline, trendy restaurants and discotheques drew in tourists, and estates were constructed to house the city's newly wealthy residents. No one really cared that the city's facelift was funded by drug money. The Mexican federal government's strict anti-drug initiatives had also waned by 1977. Drug traffickers developed a tacit agreement with Mexican law enforcement. They were forbidden from targeting children, killing government officials, or perpetuating street violence. They were allowed to transport drugs north into the U.S., but they weren't allowed to sell within Mexican communities. As long as the cartels played by these rules, police would leave them alone. It wasn't so difficult to avoid violence. Since the Guadalajara cartel enjoyed a near monopoly on the Mexican drug trade, they rarely had to resort to gang warfare. Their supply was limitless, and as cocaine caught on in the early 80s, the demand for drugs remained as high as ever. In 1981, at just 32 years old, El Azul was raking in untold millions of dollars managing drug operations for the Guadalajara cartel. That year, he was approached by Felix Gallardo's partner, Don Neto, and another rising star within the Guadalajara cartel, Rafael Caro Quintero. Now that Mexico's drug eradication efforts had dwindled, Don Neto and Caro Quintero wanted to revive the vast marijuana plantations they'd once overseen in Sinaloa. Cocaine was a good moneymaker, but growing marijuana was Caro Quintero's specialty. He had already parceled out a few hundred acres of land in the desert about 200 miles northeast of Guadalajara. He had plans to plant an even bigger crop in the northern state of Chihuahua, expanding across thousands of acres of land. Caro Quintero had already sunk $20 million from his own pocket into this massive plantation, but he was hoping to collect more funds to finance his undertaking. El Azul agreed to loan the pair $4 million to start the crops. It didn't seem risky since marijuana had become a low-priority target for the government. In 1981, 
Caro Quintero built a ranch unlike anything the drug lords had ever seen. He created five cultivation sites bigger than football fields, barracks for thousands of workers, high-tech irrigation wells, and vast storage units. The plantation, which he named Rancho Buffalo, produced a crop worth billions of dollars, promising El Azul an exponential return on his investment. It was a nice addition to the estimated $5 billion the Guadalajara cartel was pulling in from cocaine sales every year. Their Honduran deal broker, Juan Mata Ballesteros, owned an airline company called Setco which he used to send planes full of white powder up to the Mexican deserts with stunning regularity. Throughout the early 80s, Setco's business focused on two main activities, moving drugs from Colombia to Mexico on behalf of the Medellin cartel and moving weapons into Nicaragua on behalf of the CIA. Mata Ballesteros had somehow been recruited into the CIA's covert mission to aid the anti-communist Contra rebels in Nicaragua. The CIA claimed to have no idea that the planes they were using to send weapons to the Contras were also being used to smuggle drugs into the United States. Given Mata Ballesteros's known status as a DEA offender, many people find this difficult to believe. Whatever the case, Mata Ballesteros' new job as a CIA asset did nothing to slow down his drug trafficking. Nor did the fact that, according to DEA reports, the CIA and Mexican DFS used Rafael Caro Quintero's sprawling ranch as a training ground for Guatemalan guerrilla soldiers in the early 80s. The CIA dismissed the allegations as absolute nonsense, but it wouldn't be the last time the two American agencies butted heads in Mexico. In 1980, a DEA agent named Enrique Kiki Camarena accepted an assignment in Guadalajara. He uncovered several mid-sized marijuana plantations that he believed were owned by Rafael Caro Quintero. Agent Camarena was frustrated by the corruption and government inaction that allowed the drug trade to thrive. His investigations were repeatedly thwarted by the Mexican police, who all seemed to be on the cartel's payroll. Including Juan José Espargoza Moreno, alias El Azul. In 1983, a Mexican intelligence report listed the 34-year-old DFS agent among the country's suspected drug traffickers. With the thin facade of his DFS career blown, police issued several warrants for El Azul's arrest. Later that year, authorities managed to detain El Azul while he was traveling to the border city of Mexicali. But he reportedly offered his captors 7 million pesos, worth over 40,000 U.S. dollars, and he was soon released for lack of evidence. Payoffs like this frustrated Agent Camarena, and he wanted to deal a lasting blow to the Guadalajara cartel. He soon got that chance. Around November 1, 1984, the DEA office in Mexico City received a tip about a vast marijuana ranch in Chihuahua called Rancho Buffalo. This tip, combined with the intelligence agent Camarena had gathered about Cara Quintero, gave the DEA enough evidence to pressure the Mexican Attorney General's office into letting them do their job. Six days later, DEA helicopters set out at dawn, headed for the Chihuahuan Desert.
We'll hear more about the Desert Raid after this. Now back to the story. By 1984, 35-year-old Juan Jose Esparagoza Moreno, also known as El Azul, had become a key member of the Guadalajara cartel. He was already making millions off his investment in his partner Rafael Caro Quintero's massive marijuana plantation, Rancho Buffalo, in the deserts of Chihuahua. It was typical of El Azul's style to offer quiet support to his bolder comrades and then reap the rewards from behind the scenes. But Caro Quintero's brazenness was too much for one dogged DEA agent, Kiki Camarena. After monitoring Quintero's activities for years, the DEA, along with Mexican authorities, set out to destroy the Chihuahua plantation in November of 1984. The plantation was so huge, it took the raiders two days to survey the whole property. None of the agents had ever seen so much marijuana in one place. They seized and destroyed thousands of tons of crops, worth an estimated $8 billion. Time magazine called it the bust of the century, claiming that the amount of marijuana seized had set a new world record. It was a massive hit for the entire Guadalajara cartel, but Caro Quintero was understandably the most furious and did not intend to go quietly. If the DEA had intended to send a message, he would send one right back. Three months after the November 1984 raid, Mexican DFS agents surrounded Agent Camarena in broad daylight on the street outside the American consulate. He was kidnapped and taken to a ranch owned by Felix Gallardo, where he was brutally tortured by Caro Quintero and several others. Throughout the interrogation, the men grilled Camarena on which cartel leaders he was tracking, which Mexican officials had been implicated, and whether there were any other planned DEA raids. They had a doctor on site to inject Camarena with amphetamines to make sure he stayed awake through all the agony. After 30 hours of torture, they realized Camarena didn't know any useful information. They finally killed him by piercing his skull with a power drill. Agent Camarena's death is still shrouded in mystery. Several eyewitnesses from the DFS told the DEA that Mexican government officials and CIA operatives participated in the kidnapping. The man leading the interrogations, according to two eyewitnesses who have remained anonymous, was a CIA officer named Felix Rodriguez. Felix Rodriguez was later implicated as part of the Iran-Contra affair, in which the CIA engaged in illegal arms sales and possibly drug trafficking to fund the Contra rebel army in Nicaragua. As we mentioned earlier, Juan Mata Ballesteros and possibly Rafael Caro Quintero were also involved in the scandal. The DEA's internal investigation theorized that Agent Camarena had been close to discovering the financial link between the CIA and Caro Quintero, and CIA operatives encouraged Camarena's murder to cover up the scandal. The CIA, however, denies any involvement in the murder and questions the credibility of the anonymous eyewitnesses who implicated them. We may never know for sure who gave the order, but the Guadalajara cartel had done the deed. By killing Agent Camarena, they'd broken the code that had afforded them free reign. 
the Mexican government couldn't ignore the murder of a law enforcement officer, especially one who held an American passport. The backlash was immediate. Officer Florentino Ventura, nicknamed the Tiger, took on the case against the drug barons. Ventura's contemporaries called him the most powerful and most feared police officer in the country. He was chief of the anti-drug division of the Attorney General's office and also the director of the Mexican division of Interpol. Ventura's colleagues said that he could never be bought off, but he didn't necessarily have a spotless record. He was known for his ruthless treatment of the criminals he interrogated. Some said his methods even amounted to torture. One of the reasons Ventura was so feared was that he was a collector of kingpin secrets. He made it his business to learn about relationships that connected the underworld. Through his vast network of sources, he tracked down the Guadalajara cartel leaders one by one. On April 7, 1985, two months after Camarena's death, Authorities arrested Guadalajara cartel leader Don Neto in the resort town of Puerto Vallarta. Rafael Caro Quintero fled to Costa Rica, but he was arrested there on April 4th. Their next target was El Azul. El Azul may not have been directly involved in the murder at all, but as one of the high-ranking leaders of the Guadalajara cartel and a financier of the marijuana plantation that had been burned, he was implicated as well. El Azul's greatest asset was his ability to remain under the radar. He didn't draw attention to himself by making powerful enemies. He used his charm and his money to earn the allegiance of criminals and government authorities alike. But he knew Florentino Ventura would be immune to his magnetism and his bribes. In the spring of 1986, El Azul was lying low in the outskirts of Santiago de Querétaro. He thought he would be safe there, but Ventura tracked the kingpin down. On a brisk March evening, Ventura led a group of six officers to El Azul's compound. They broke through the door, knocked El Azul to the floor, and kicked him in the ribs. Unsatisfied, Ventura began to berate El Azul's wife, Ophelia, who was also in the room. El Azul tried to intervene, saying, You already have me. Don't mess with my family. I'm the one you want. This is not what men do. Ventura laughed and slapped the drug lord across the face. He then put handcuffs on El Azul's 13-year-old son and made the parents watch as officers beat the boy senseless. Ventura would later boast that he was the only officer who had ever managed to capture El Azul. But he wouldn't boast for very long. When Florentino Ventura died of an apparent suicide two years later, in 1988, many found the death suspicious. Reports have also noted that all six of the officers who accompanied Ventura to arrest El Azul were assassinated over the next two decades. Those close to El Azul have dismissed this as a coincidence. In March 1986, 37-year-old El Azul was convicted of drug trafficking. He was given a seven-year sentence, but prison was barely a step down for him. He had enough money and influence to renovate the penitentiary and turn the place into his own personal hotel. But despite his outwardly lively personality, his inmate records reveal a man plagued by deep anxieties. 
During meetings with a prison psychologist, El Azul showed signs of being a hypochondriac. He incessantly worried about his health and future. His fears may have been exacerbated by the deaths of his parents five years prior. Both had died of cancer within months of each other. Many notorious kingpins are known for their fearless bravado, but El Azul was not the kind of man who got a thrill from courting danger. He confessed that he was afraid of dying. He suffered from nightmares and said that his prior brushes with death haunted him. Other events may have also contributed to his anxieties. As a key figure in the Guadalajara cartel, El Azul had been part of an untouchable class. But the group's reign was coming to an end. On April 8, 1989, Mexican police officers stormed the Guadalajara mansion of Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo. He was still in his pajamas, eating breakfast with his wife and children. The officers arrested the kingpin and paraded him before the press in handcuffs. Felix Gallardo was sentenced to 37 years in prison for his role in the Camarena murder. He remains incarcerated in a Mexican federal prison to this day. With its last remaining leader taken out, the Guadalajara cartel collapsed. Now, drug lords like El Azul had to reckon with an uncertain future. From their prison cells, El Azul, the Godfather, and other top leaders oversaw the organization's dissolution. Shortly after Felix Gallardo's incarceration, they convened a summit in Acapulco to divide up the pieces of the former empire. By some accounts, El Azul was even granted permission to leave prison to attend the meeting. The leaders agreed to dissolve the once nationwide operation into separate cartels all along the Pacific coast. The territories in Tijuana, Sinaloa, and Juarez would all have separate leaders, each running a distinct organization with its own rules and hierarchies. But the leaders agreed to maintain a loosely held alliance to reduce tensions and keep order. This alliance was known as the Federation. The terms of the agreement meant that each cartel leader could pass through the territories of the others as long as they paid a fee to the territory's owner. The territory in the border city of Juarez was granted to Don Neto's nephew, one of the emerging leaders in the nation's narcotics trade, Amado Carrillo Fuentes. Carrillo Fuentes had been arrested for drug trafficking in 1989, not long before Felix Gallardo's arrest. He served time in the same prison as El Azul, and their sentences overlapped. El Azul may have had seniority over Carrillo Fuentes in the Guadalajara cartel, but now that the cartel's days were over, he realized that Carrillo's ambitions surpassed his own. As Carrillo began to stake out a claim to the title of Mexico's most powerful drug lord, El Azul gave the young man his support and approval. Carrillo Fuentes didn't stay in prison for long. He had a connection with the deputy attorney general, which he exploited to get his conviction overturned. Once he was released from prison, he set out to achieve his goal, to take control over the drug flow through the northern Pacific coast of Mexico. In 1992, El Azul was released from prison as well, after serving six years of his seven-year sentence. At 43 years old, his days of advising the legends of the Guadalajara cartel were over. But his life as a Mexican kingpin was just beginning. 
he was about to step forward into a new era of organized crime. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week as we explore El Azul's career as the peacekeeper of the Mexican underworld. You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Christina Pamies and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett. <laughs>